I'm Libby Rothschild, former clinical dietitian who transformed into a full-time virtual business owner. It was only one year ago when I made $55,000 a year in my clinical job. And now I make $100,000 a month being my own boss. And you can do this too. My clients, who are all female dietitians and students, started from zero and created six-figure, multi-six-figure businesses by following my proven method. And they've all been guests on air. My proven method shows you how to attract cash paying clients using social media marketing strategies that work. You don't have to guess, waste time, or hold yourself back when you follow my step-by-step method. Hello and welcome. I'm here today for a special panel discussion on diet and mental health myths with Becca and Zoe. Becca King is a registered dietitian nutritionist from Charlotte, North Carolina. Becca started her career working at an outpatient weight loss clinic where she saw firsthand how dieting did not work and left her patients with a poor relationship with food. After getting laid off due to the pandemic, Becca took it as a sign to start her virtual practice. Now Becca helps young women like herself who have ADHD and struggle with binge eating, chronic dieting, and body image issues find food freedom and improve their self-esteem. She is passionate about using the principles of intuitive eating and a weight-inclusive approach to nutrition. In her free time, Becca loves taking Lola, her rescue pup, on long walks and can't wait to see live music again. Zoe is a social worker in Toronto who works primarily with individuals struggling with eating disorders, particularly binge eating disorder. Unbeknownst to Zoe, she was also struggling with binge eating disorder for many years, and it wasn't until her graduate school that she learned that her food issues actually had a name. For many years, she saw previous struggles with binge eating disorder as something that would hold her back professionally and would cause people to not believe in her. She's recently come to see that she couldn't have been more wrong and that by sharing her story, she's been able to help not only motivate people towards full recovery, but also help many people come out of the woodwork and get the support that they deserve. Thank you and uh, for joining today and welcome. Did I leave anything out from the bio today? No, that's, that's everything fabulous. Fantastic. All right. Excellent. So then, We will go ahead and dive right in. My first question I wanted to ask is, what do we misunderstand about the relationship between food and mental health? And of course, you can give as much background or examples as appropriate for this question. Yeah, so I think the first thing that I would say about that is a lot of people... I'll back up for a second. A lot of my clients have have said or expressed over time that they felt that people have judged their eating difficulties as willful. A lot of people have said to them that, you know, they're selfish or they're greedy or they can just stop or, you know, even in some cases that their binging is a sign of low intelligence and it's horrible. It's heartbreaking. But what that does is that doesn't take into consideration the ways in which anxiety, trauma, some cases maybe impulse control, but I would say a lot of the time anxiety, depression, and trauma play into the development of binge eating disorder. And when people hear these types of comments that, oh, you know, they could stop if they wanted to, or they're greedy, or they're bad, or they're not very smart, it just sends them deeper into that cycle, and they just become way less likely to get help. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. Yeah, I I would completely agree with that. I think a lot of times people get 
told really negative things and it ends up being that they shut off from others instead of continuing to reach out for help with those things that they're dealing with trauma or anxiety or depression. And when people make those comments, it makes them close themselves off from people. And I think a lot of times that ends up causing binging to happen in private. And it's not something that's very much talked about because they already feel so much shame and guilt for what they're doing in the first place. Yeah, I think that's it, that's a huge part of it is the shame and the guilt. And when I talk about like impulses, like some of my clients struggle with ADHD, like your practice, I'm not saying that because I'm trying to say that that's what binging is. But I think if somebody is highly anxious, highly depressed, feeling lonely, cut off from the world, like we look at even like what quarantine did to a lot of people, that's going to make it harder to separate urge from action and stop binging. So I think that all eating disorders have their difficulties, but we look at binging as a willful behavior and we're less likely as a society to offer help and support and compassion because we say, okay, well, they're eating, they're choosing to eat large quantities instead of looking at why this is happening. Yeah. As I say, I completely agree with that. I've hear just from people, well, they should just stop eat. Like they can just stop when they're full. And it's, so much deeper than that even with like impulse control I think a lot of times anxiety and depression and other things that impulse control is kind of the first thing because sometimes food's their only tool to cope with their emotions so it just gets put as this is impulse control like I just can't control my impulses but when you start diving deeper at least with my clients it's a lot other more other issues than just like I'm impulsively eating it's other things along with that and can you give a story, um, Becca? And I'd, I'd love to hear too, Zoe, because I'm sure there's some great examples of this. If I'm understanding this correctly, the myth, the misinformation is that the issue is the binge eating itself when really there are underlying causes and issues. Is that correct? Yes. So can you give an example of what those might be? Because I think a lot of the listeners, both that might be aware of um, binge eating and mental health and who aren't, would love some context and to know about, you know, the ins and outs of the clients that you work with and, and getting um, really understanding this issue on a deeper level so that we can provide better care and empathy. Yeah, absolutely. So some of my clients, so one of them, for instance, uses food to cope with her anxiety. So she might not eat much during the day, especially if she's, she has ADHD and takes meds. She kind of can push off her hunger and they'll tell, I get that all the time. I know I'm hungry. I just don't prioritize it. So I just keep, I have too much stuff to do. And they won't eat during the day, but because their anxiety is so bad when they are done working for the day, they use food as a way to calm themselves down and to feel soothed, which is, as, and so to them, it's, that's the only tool they have to feel that way. And especially right now, they might use like hanging out with friends or going and doing other things as a way to cope with anxiety and things, but we can't do that right now. So that makes it even more challenging because the other tools you might have to cope with your anxiety you might not have right now. So food becomes a very quick and easily available thing to turn to. Yeah. And so do you have anything to add to that? I think Becca spot on with that. I think that like one of the things that was especially true in Toronto was March and April was a really like serious lockdown in the sense that like, unless you were going to the grocery store ordering Uber, nothing was open. And like when people don't have their creature comforts, 
I agree. Like that definitely increases binging. And I've also seen that work the other way where as things have started to open up here in the city and people are reconnecting with friends or family or doing things at a social distance, the fear of like, I guess like revealing themselves after months is also causing binging. So for me, if I look at what the underlying factor here is, it's, not only anxiety, but it's a feeling that people get, a feeling that they're not in control of their circumstances. And if we boil that down, that can actually make a lot of sense. Because if somebody feels like they're not in control of their time, or they're having to constantly deal with people who bring them down and don't make them happy and cause them stress, they might try to find something that brings them control. And that can be the binge restrict cycle, or that can be feeling like you need to soothe your emotions with food exclusively. So it's tough. Like I definitely have had clients who, who've gone through that in the pandemic, a lot of coming up the other side of it. But one of the things that we're working on in our sessions is how can you get control back into your life? And not that it's that easy, but little ways. How can you set up leisure time in your week? How can you make sure that you're minimizing contact as much as possible? Because sometimes it isn't with unpleasant people and how can you set up your life and even your budget to best accommodate you? Yeah. And I think something that I'm curious about us having a conversation on it on a kind of a deeper level as well is what we understand about people who have binge eating disorder um, about what, like what we don't see. Right. So I think a lot of times there's trauma and there's other issues that as practitioners or consumers, they don't understand. And so we make all these false assumptions like you had mentioned earlier. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Again, to instill empathy, both in, and there are plenty of listeners that do not work with this population and do not understand. And so I think it's really helpful to share the experiences both from a social worker and a dietitian and the, the types of people you work with and what we might not realize. So as a social worker, the clients that I've seen with binge eating disorder are some of the smartest, most resilient people that I've probably ever worked with. And I know like a lot of therapists say that and it sounds kind of like, oh, but like these are actually really, really determined good people. And if we look at, but the problem is, is that society just sees the benching, right? They don't see these long periods of restriction. They don't see these clients desperately trying to have a good relationship with food and understand what's going on. So I think that we need to rethink the way that we think about this population because especially in my experience personally, but also as a practitioner, a lot of people characterize this group of people as willful, lazy, negligent, greedy, unintelligent. And I think that that really couldn't be farther from the truth. Yeah, yeah I would come, I would agree. I think people put a lot of negative adjectives to describe people based on their binging behavior when that's not anything to do with who they are as a person. And oftentimes that just ends up being how people see them is like, they just, they're all these negative things when really they're not, they're usually very amazing, incredible people who still deserve the same compassion and empathy that people, that someone who doesn't have binge eating gets. Yeah. And go ahead, Zoe. Yeah, and I think, I think one thing to think about, too, is we look at binge eating disorder as high-volume eating. We don't look at other aspects of that person's life. Like, for example, 
How is binging similar to how they relate to people? How is binging similar to or related to other aspects of their life? Like one of the things I do with clients is how do we feel like this is similar to or similar or different to how you relate to people? And a lot of the time at first they think I'm a little bit, you know, weird for asking that question, but sometimes I'll get answers back. Like, I don't believe people will be there tomorrow. So I binge on relationships or I feel completely insecure in my job. So I work a million hours and want to prove myself. And again, this population is not doing any of the above because of any of the negative things that like people associate with them. These are real issues. Right. And I think that when we can take their eating disorder and connect that to other like difficult aspects of their life, we can understand how this developed in the first place and really help them on an individual level to get better and feel better because my opinion as a therapist is it's really, it's about the food, but it's also not about the food. And could you have any stories? So, you know, obviously no identifying information about a client or an experience where you can show us that it's about the food slash it's not about the food and how they were able to overcome that. I love how you're mentioning uh, that how you, you know, interact with people, binging with people and, and translating that um, concept. Do you, do you have a story you could share with us? Yeah, for sure. For sure. So this story is unique because this particular client also struggled with excessive social drinking at the same time. But when we looked at this, when we looked at the, the binging and the excessive drinking, it was a way for her to mask the trauma and anxiety she felt related to a past partner in social situations. And what we discovered is it was a way that she was controlling the room. So when she got really drunk or she, you know, was eating a lot and sort of known as this like person who just did that, that for her was a way to get out of those really difficult feelings based on what she experienced. And to put it into context, this experience she had was a pretty publicly abusive relationship. And this was a way for her to not have to feel that she was facing these feelings. And once we looked at, okay, how can you not need control of the room, but how can you communicate differently to your friends? How can you figure out what social events you actually want to be at? How can we make sure you're having fun without drinking? A lot of this behavior pretty much just abruptly stopped because she understood where it was coming from. That's beautiful. Thank you for sharing that. I love that example. Uh, If either one of you has any other examples or stories you want to share, I think that's really helpful for the listeners to get some context. I've had some clients who, one of my clients, she finds anytime she has a big report due um, and she has to analyze a lot of numbers and then put a lot of data, she always ends up binging on chocolate while she's doing this activity and she could never quite understand why she was doing it. She was like, I just, I don't get it. And as we, I kind of broke it down and for her, it, part of it was seeking dopamine for ADHD because we're lower, have lower levels of dopamine. So chocolate, sugar, and caffeine. So that's like double whammy, but she would find, she was like, it was the only way I could get through it. And she, but she felt so much guilt and shame towards it. And as we started kind of breaking it down a little bit more in the sciencey way and explaining why she might be doing that and then coming up with other ways for her to get some stimulation. So she didn't have to use the chocolate, but also giving her the permission and telling her, you know, like it's okay if 
if this one time you're going to eat a little bit more chocolate, but not necessarily go like full into a binge, like that's okay. Like you don't have to just have one piece of chocolate. Cause I feel like that's also like people make, start making rules like, okay, I can't, I can only have this much of something, which ends up tending to bring them more likely to binge later on. So trying to just give her the space and flexibility to know that like, this is a tool she has, but there's other tools out there. And how can we grow those tools as well? So she has options as opposed to like, just food. That's great. Thank you for sharing that. It's really powerful. Excellent. And uh, unless if you either either one of you have anything to add, I know we've been talking a lot about binge eating specifically. Mm -hmm. But when it comes to mental health in general, is there anything else that you want to add or you think would be helpful as far as context with what, again, either other allied healthcare providers or consumers, what their misunderstanding? I think the elephant in the room we haven't addressed in depth is that there are so many things that we don't fully understand about the human being beyond the, the diagnosis itself, not to mention those who aren't diagnosed. So is there any yeah. kind of stories or anything you want to add to that as far as you know, I know you, you've seen abuse, trauma, like personality disorders or those living with people, you know, all kinds of issues. So is, is there anything, I think that it can add a lot of empathy for practitioners to, to understand that. I know we might hear it, but I don't think we fully understand that. So I think one thing that I've seen in my profession and I personally needed a wake up call to this too was getting a better understanding of other medical conditions that our clients may present with. So for example, I've come to understand that women with PCOS may be more likely to struggle with binge eating based on hormonal concerns. And, you know, I didn't learn about this until three months ago when I was, or three months ago, probably more like six, the pandemic does this too. When I was diagnosed myself with PCOS and that put a lot of the issues I had with binging 10 years ago, completely into context, right? So I think when we look at mental health, when we look at binging, we also need to look at what other conditions may be contributing to that. So for example, with PCOS, um, there is a higher incidence of anxiety, depression, trauma, um, even suicidal ideation. And I think that as social workers, and I include myself in this, we need to get much better at collecting that kind of medical data during intakes and really explaining to our prospective clients why this is necessary. Because if we really want to like endeavor to have individual treatment plans, we really need to have this information. It's not enough for us to say, okay, you have BED, were you diagnosed? Were you not, you know, when do you binge? We have to say what else is happening or what else may you be dealing with that could also be compounding this condition. I love that. So really using those motivational interviewing skills to ask beyond the assessment and really be empathetic and, and learn and listen to the client. Is that what you're saying, Zoe? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Super helpful. Anything you want to add to that, Becca? Yeah. I think one thing also to consider, I can't remember who I saw this on their Instagram. It might've been Heather Kaplan or someone along those lines. She, someone had just, guys like on your intake forms making sure that you ask people if they've ever been food insecure if they are food insecure if they've experienced trauma any of those things and I still ask about other mental health conditions as well but I think having that component as well is really powerful because it also makes 
the client or patient feel like you understand that there's other deeper issues going on than just like what the surface level or what the one thing is that they're coming to you with, like, cause all those other issues are going to also be contributing. So. Yeah. Um, That's re- really helpful. So thank you for sharing that. So the, the both from Zoe and Becca, what you're saying, the two things from intake forms are ask questions beyond what's on the intake form and, and <laughs> perhaps use motivational interviewing or some skills where you're being empathetic and thinking beyond the kind of check boxes. And then um, also to ask questions that might be probing it what's not obvious as far as past traumatic events uh, or associations to make sure that we're fully understanding and, and giving the care or the recommendations or referrals that we need for the client at hand. Is that correct? Absolutely. And just, and just to add to that too, I think that as people, as consumers, we also have to question the media. Like one of the things that I think we've all grown up seeing and we're almost desensitized to it is like, there'll be a TV show or a movie and some girl gets broken up with and she's crying and eating ice cream out of the cart. Right. And we've almost made that into this like, ha ha, like trope. Right. And I think if we look at that, that's a classic example of somebody overcome with emotion, feeling lonely, scared, anything, and doing the best that they can in that situation but yet societies need that into something that's funny and something to laugh at. Right. And I think that when we work with clients, we also have to understand and like deconstruct that kind of media because that's what they're seeing. Right. It's not only people telling them that what they're dealing with is shameful, but it's also TV movies, you know, even Instagram that's, saying that to them. And I think that's particularly true for women in larger bodies. So, and, and, and people in general, my primary clientele is women. So I think that we have to even go a step further than that. Yeah. Anything to add to that, Becca? I would, yeah, I would agree. I think, and I think there's a, like also a component with like, I've had some clients who are been told that they have PTOS or they, but they're struggling with binge eating and their doctor just says, lose weight and you'll be fine. Oh and they're God. like, that's, yeah. And you're like, that's not, that's just putting a bandaid on it because you don't want to address it as the provider of what's really going on. And it makes the patient feel like terrible. And they're like, I want to go find a new doctor because I didn't even ask you about my weight. I came here for something else. And now you're just telling me I need to lose weight to feel, to be better. And that's not what I came here for. And it's, I, it breaks my heart because I can't even imagine. I've even had my provider recently comment on my weight. And I was like, I didn't ask you to talk about that. Thank you. But it just, it's unnecessary for them a lot of times. And they get, they think that that's the only solution to their problems often. Yeah. And so how does that conversation and that dialogue affect mental health for your clients? And then how can we resend those messages or demystify some of the information that is sending messages that are not helpful for our clients. So just to respond to that, I'll do so with like a bit of a story. So I have a client and she's been trying to get diagnosed with something. There's several medical conditions on the table in terms of what they could be, um, PCOS included. And initially that's exactly what was happening because unfortunately because of her body size, she was getting just lose weight, just do this, just do this, just do that, this. But the reality was she was actually restricting for long periods of time. The binging was happening, but it was long periods of time. Either way, doesn't even really matter because she wasn't getting the 
help or the care that she needed because her body size was a barrier. So I think sometimes as providers, we do need to kick the door in for our patients and really advocate and say, listen, like, this is incomplete here. What else can you do? And I think that's where teaming up with your patient to help or your client to help them find the best resources is really important. And this is not because I want to say everybody should hate doctors. There's wonderful, great doctors. But I think that sometimes it's not enough to just give them the tools. Sometimes they need that extra person to help them. Absolutely. So I want to move on and ask uh, how your method, each of your methods respectively, produce positive results uh, for your clients. And if you want to add in anything about marketing, that's cool. But more specifically about what you do to help your clients who struggle with mental health issues. And you can give examples or stories um, and, and maybe lend some tips for the listeners. So I take an intuitive eating approach. So I find with ADHD, mindfulness practices are very much promoted and intuitive eating takes in the mindfulness component, but it's also challenging our cognitive distortions around food and also helping address emotional eating. So I find that that is huge in giving them a different way to think about food a lot of times. Most of my clients also struggle with binge eating or when don't eat during the day when they're on their meds and binge when their meds wear off. So trying to kind of rethink and relearn hunger and also create a space for them I think that's the biggest part because I do small group coaching. So creating a space for them to be around other people who also have ADHD and they maybe have never been in a group of people who also have ADHD. So that part and just being able to speak in a non-judgmental space for a lot of them is huge because they've never been able to do that before. And I think that really helps with the healing and like process. Becca, can you give an example of what a non-judgmental, what does that mean? Like how can you get some more context? Yeah. So being, I think being able to tell your story and talk about it in a way that someone isn't going to say, you know, it's just willpower, you know, just stop, you know, or judging you because you're like, I, you know, every time I buy Nutella, I eat the whole thing in one sitting. And instead of people like judging you and giving you like facial expressions, everyone in the group is like, I've done that too or it's with a different food and being able to create that community and environment where it's like, Hey, this, we all struggle with this, but we all want to make, be a better version of ourselves, And I think that helps empower them as well. That's beautiful. Thank you for the example. I love the specific yeah. example you gave too. like, you can switch out the food. It's just either the person talking about something, but not feeling or feeling comfortable enough to explain it and be a better version of themselves. is really powerful. Anything you want to add to that, Zoe? Yeah, for sure. So one of the most, I would say, restorative conversations I've had with clients is showing them that binging is often a response to deprivation. And some of my clients have been food insecure, but a lot haven't. And this really just has to do with where I practice in Toronto and who comes to see me. But so a lot of them will say like, I don't know, I haven't really been deprived. I have unlimited access to food. So my response to that's going to be, okay, let's figure out what else it is, right? Maybe it's relationships, maybe it's love. Sometimes it can even be sex. It can be so many things. And we look at how we can bridge that gap. We look at how we can help them to not be deprived of whatever it is that they 
are feeling deprived of because usually until they come to my office, they feel that this is willful. They've been told they have a willpower problem. They've been told all kinds of things. And when we look at the fact that they're responding to deprivation in some way, that can be really helpful. Yeah. Can you give an example? You mentioned a bunch of situations that it could be, including um, sex and relationships. Do you have any kind of particular stories or reflections of a client or scenario with that? Yeah, absolutely. So I have one client and this is actually a man. He was, rec- he's, he was in the process of separating from his wife. He has really, really grueling work schedule. And um, they were co-parenting this little boy and this relationship was at one time amazing and now it wasn't. And he was just binging, 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 binging. And he works a pretty high profile job. He, you know, prides himself on his achievements and he just felt broken. Right. And we talked about feeling deprived of romantic close connections, particularly at the beginning of the pandemic when they were stuck living together and in, but yeah, just basically hating each other's guts. And I think that was really helpful as a starting point. Of course, we had to look at strategies of what he could do about it, but understanding that this wasn't him waking up one day and deciding today I'd like to do something not nice for myself or whatever it is that people sometimes think happens. Yeah, no, that's really powerful. And so what you're saying with that story is that identifying uh, the root issue and really unpacking what was going on in his life and the you know, variables that had to do with the pandemic helped him get a better sense of why he was doing it and the underlying issues and then perhaps find some strategies that made sense. Absolutely. Yeah. Wonderful. Anything else that either one of you want to add about how your method produces positive results uh, for your clients with respect to mental health and identifying underlying issues? Any other examples or anything you think would be helpful? I know from like a marketing perspective, because you had mentioned that for a lot of people, when they see my post, it's the first time they've ever seen someone connect ADHD and binge eating. So it's just like a lot of times it's just light bulbs going off in their head or they're like, I thought this was just me or wait, my binge eating is connected to my ADHD. I had no idea. And you're, and it just, for me, seeing that light bulb go, go off really does, it makes a positive impact. Even if they don't end up being my client, just being able to like give them an answer to something that they might be struggling with and not realize like that there's something that can help explain it as opposed to just being confusing to them, I guess, is the best word I have for that. But yeah. Yeah. And and what I'm hearing you say, and that's beautiful, you've gotten such positive feedback, and I know you've gotten a lot of professional connection and networking and whatnot from what you're doing. It's amazing. What I'm hearing from both you, Becca, and and Zoe is the validation piece. So Becca's validating with medication and ADHD, binge eating can be more common. And here's a solution by intuitive eating to get support and validate your concerns, which are similar to many other people in the environment and the methodology that you're able to walk them through. Is that correct? And then Zoe, I'm hearing you say that that's very, people that you might not expect, very intelligent people struggle with binge eating. And when you go, uh, when you really understand the root issue and the cause and you unpack that and look at the person as an individual, you can get some solutions that might make sense for that person and really help talk them through and be there for them as a resource to demystify the fact that they might be feeling like a society or media has shown them 
or made them feel to be a certain way or, or make them feel insignificant, you're validating that that's, that's happens and it's okay. And then giving them the space to heal is, would you say that's correct, Zoe? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Because I think a lot of them come with this like horrible, like backpack of shame on their back because that's how they've been socialized. And when we're able to have conversations where we come to the conclusion, okay, like, this binging actually makes sense in this situation, but let's help you get your needs met in a way that's going to make you happier and in a way that's going to help you feel better. Because like what I always explain to people is like, you're trying to satisfy a need and that's good. You should, but let's do this in a way that is going to help you. Incredible. Yeah. Yeah. It's so powerful. Is there anything either one of you want to add before we wrap up on the conversation about mental health, binge eating, myths, social media, and your process? I think there's the one other myth that I often get is that like some magical food or like diet is going to be a cure-all, especially in the ADHD community. But there is no really strong research yet for that component. So hard to say I'm like if it works if you find something that works for you great but like if it's not working for you and you're trying to diet or restrict all these foods it's usually going to end up backfiring and then you end up struggling with binging because you are in this phase where you feel like you shouldn't be eating certain foods even though there might not be really good research to support cutting them out yeah totally I get that anything else you want to add to that Zoe or you want to sign off Yeah, I think that really when it comes down to it, what I want to say to anybody who's listening is if you think you might benefit from help, please go seek it out. Even if you don't meet diagnostic criteria for BED, that doesn't mean there may not be a binging issue or that you wouldn't benefit from talking to someone. I think a lot of people feel like they need to be sick enough and that's problematic on its own. Or some people feel like, okay, if I say something like I'm going to be put in like a heavy duty treatment program and more often than not, most people can benefit from working with a therapist. And um, in my practice, I always make sure people have a dietitian too, just to understand the nutritional component and working with a dietitian to figure out how they can eat in a day that's satisfying to them and gets their nutritional needs met and helps them enjoy their fun foods. And I think that even though everyone's process is unique, these situations are treatable and solvable. I love that. So, so helpful. Thank you both for your time. Um, If you remind everybody where to find you on social and then we'll wrap up. So I can be found at um, binge recovery therapist online and uh, look forward to connecting with you. Fantastic. And Becca? And you can find me on Instagram at ADHD.nutritionist. Fantastic. Thank you both. If you identify as a female dietitian or student, apply to my coaching program. I'm accepting applications now. My clients go from zero to exceeding their sales goals. I save you time, energy, and I show you how to confidently become a dietitian boss. Thousands of your colleagues from around the world are doing it, and so can you. Apply on my website at LibbyRothschild.com and check the show notes if you want that link right away.